morning, Cross Point. Good morning. Hope you guys are doing well. So children, you can be released. You'll see Miss Jenny in the back holding up the flag. And as the kids are making their way back there, I want to invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 14. We're going to be looking in verse, uh, beginning in verse 26 this morning. Uh, If you have the scripture journal, you can find that on the bottom of page 88 uh, to make it easier. And really from the beginning of the year this year, we've started going through the gospel of Mark, journeying with Jesus. And in the very beginning, we saw and we watched as Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. We heard as, as Jesus called to the disciples and he's like, follow me. And they left families and they left jobs to follow after Jesus. We watched as Jesus healed the blind, right? If you remember when he healed uh, Peter's mother-in-law, and then the next morning people were waiting for him outside the house, like droves of crowds coming to, to listen, to hear as Jesus taught, to watch as he healed people. And, and it seems like the momentum was growing and growing. And then we heard as Jesus began to say, I'm headed to Jerusalem and there I'm going to die. Three times he said this. And then we've entered into this last week and it feels as if everything was hitting this crescendo until today. Today it's as if the silence begins. There's an agony. There's a darkness that sets in. The crowds who adored him are fast asleep. The disciples who have followed after him will flee by the end of the day. This marks a significant transition in the story. And so I want to begin and with prayer and then reading the text because I want us to see how does Jesus respond in this moment? What about the disciples? What is this saying for us today? How should we listen and hear these events and walk with Jesus through this very dark moment? And what should we leave here thinking or believing or doing in response to who God is? So let's pray and then we'll read the passage together. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for this time that we have this morning, and I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts to hear your word. Lord, to to lay down our burdens and our distractions to hear from you this morning. Lord, in this painful moment, let us not just pass through it too quickly because it makes us uncomfortable, but Lord, let us pause let us consider in way its truth together. And in Jesus' name, amen. So in Mark 14, beginning in verse 26, again at the bottom of page 88, if you're able to read along. You will remember last week, Jesus just had the Passover meal, the Seder meal with his disciples. And so verse 26 picks up, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, said to all the disciples, you will all fall away. All of you will fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter, Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me 
three times. But Peter, he emphatically said, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled and said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed, prayed that if it were possible, the night, this hour might pass from him. And Jesus prayed, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and he found them sleeping and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And and again, Jesus went away and he prayed and he said the same words. And again, he came and he found them sleeping for their eyes were very heavy and they didn't know how to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It's enough. It's enough. The hour has come. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us be going. See. My betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while Jesus was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs, with the chief priest and the scribes and the elders. And and now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And, And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, And he kissed him. And they laid hands on Jesus and seized him. But one who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture him? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me then. But let the scripture be fulfilled. And they all left him. And fled. This is God's word. There's a few things I want us to see here this morning. And the first is this that Jesus suffers alone. He stands alone in this moment. And I refer to this at the beginning. The Gospel of Mark, he's been surrounded by people. There's always been crowds pressing in. There's been disciples who are following him, who are listening to him. There are those who want to hear his teaching again and again. His popularity rose. And Jesus warned the disciples that he told them that he was going to Jerusalem to die. But in this moment, there's no more crowds. By the end of this story, it says that they all run away. And I want us to see kind of this stripping away of everything. Because back in verse 18, Jesus, he's having the final meal with his disciples. And he says, one of you, one of the twelve, one of those closest to him, the one who was sitting most likely to his left at that last supper, who took the bread and dipped it in the bitter herbs with Jesus, would betray Jesus. 
for $300. Jesus told the, the disciples in verses 32 through 40 that in his moment of deepest need, in his moment of deepest need, they would all fail him. Every last one of them would fail him. That the betrayer Judas would come and betray him with a kiss. As he spoke the word rabbi and placed a kiss on his cheek, the knife went into his back, metaphorically. Those closest to him. And then in the end, how how the passage ends, they all fled. They all left him. They all fled. No more disciples, only his betrayer and an angry mob. No more worshiping crowds, only those who want his destruction. There would be no crown for the king, but only shackles to be led away. The light of the world arrested under the cover of darkness alone. They all fail. They all flee. And it brings me to the question, the way that I feel in that, is I ask myself, like, I would be a better disciple, right? Have you ever asked yourself, like, would you have made a better disciple? I want to find in myself saying, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't run. I wouldn't flee. But in the end, I hear my own thoughts echoed in the words of Peter. Because isn't this what Peter exactly said? Jesus is like, you're all going to fail me. Every last one of you, you will all fail me. And what does Peter say? Look, all these fools, they may leave you, but not me. I got your back, Jesus. I'm not running away. And Jesus tells him, he goes, no, not only are you going to run away, but before the night is over, you'll deny me three times. And Peter's like, not me. I would rather die first than run away. Like, I hear my voice in Peter's. That's how I want to respond. I want to say, not me. All these guys, they're weak, whatever. I'm not afraid to die. Bring it on. I got your back, Jesus. They all flee. And I realize that I have to reconcile in my own heart how I would have and how I do fail Jesus. I have the good intentions, great intentions, but sometimes poor follow-through. I think about the disciples and what Jesus says, that it was in prophecy, that Jesus is quoting from Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7, when it says in the prophecy that when I strike the shepherd, it actually says this whole thing, you will all fall away is what Jesus says. And he's quoting from Zechariah 13 where it says, awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered and I will turn my hand against the little ones. That I would have failed. Prophecy said it. You put any one of us in the garden of Gethsemane with Jesus, we would have all fled. And there's something we have to come to grips with in our own heart about that because I don't like that. I want to think like Peter. And not me. I wouldn't. But I would. It had been a long week. 
They've just had three cups of wine, even if it's watered-down wine. Three cups of wine. It's midnight. They're sitting under the darkness of night under olive trees, and Jesus wants to pray at midnight. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And they all flee. Here's the thing that strikes me in that. Jesus doesn't condemn them. He doesn't blast them. He gives them a promise. Because he says in the very beginning, look, when I'm struck down, you're all going to flee, but I'm going to go before you, and I'm going to meet you in Galilee. Do you hear that promise? Jesus knows that Peter is about to deny him. He knows that they're all about to run away. They all intend well, but they will all fail him. And then Jesus turns around and he says, when I rise from the dead, you're going to leave me alone. But when I die and when I rise from the dead, I'm going to go before you. And I will be faithful to you even when you are faithless. Even in the midst of the failure, you hear the heart of Christ pressing in, going before those like me who fail. See, I'm reminded, like, I think of the words of the disciples. I won't fail you. I got you. I won't leave you. And yet every single one of them fail. And then I hear Jesus saying, I'm going to go before you. When I rise from the dead, I'm going to go before you and meet you in Galilee. And Jesus is the only one who stands faithful to the end. To me, this brings great encouragement. People mean well, but they hurt us. They leave. But we have a friend and a Savior who is faithful to the end, even when we fail. Not just when others fail us, when I fail. When I have failed Him, He is still faithful to me. There is a hope here in a resolution that we need to come to grips in our own heart. How what we want to do and what we do are very different. And we fall on the mercy of God through it all. In verse 32, we see as Jesus is entering the place called Gethsemane. It literally means an oil press that if you remember that the map from the, the Temple Mount down to the Kidron Valley up onto the Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane, is there. It's, it's full of olive trees, and it literally means it's an oil press. Now, the way that this would have looked is it was a circular stone trough. It kind of had two walls on the side that went all the way around in a circle, and they put a stone wheel right in the middle that had a hole in it that would have a wooden post that they would put to a donkey or a mule. And then that would pull around. They would fill it with olives, and they would bring this stone around to crush the olives producing the oil. The first bit would be the extra virgin oil, then the virgin olive oil, and then it would go down to the last drop, which they would make soaps out of. And so you see all of these ways that it literally means to be pressed, to be broken. I say that because this is exactly what we see in Jesus as he enters the Garden of Gethsemane. There's this distress, there's this sorrow, there's this weight bearing down on his soul that leads to, he says, my soul is very sorrowful. I am greatly distressed and troubled. We hear 
the weight. Other Gospels tell us how Jesus pled in tears as though drops of blood falling from his eyes. The pressure, it was so intense. But here's the thing, why? Why did Jesus have such a strong reaction to the upcoming suffering that was before him? Because so many others have faced death before him and after him with more boldness. What was it that was so breaking, so burdensome, so that caused him to weep so profoundly in the Garden of Gethsemane? in Romans, they had different versions of heroes. They tell us numerous stories, and some heroes of old, they were cold, they were distanced as they approached their final moments before death, and they would stare into it emotionless as though proud. In, in uh, First and Second Maccabees, in the history for Jewish heroes, you see them standing not with a cool, calm, and collective, but with this fierce anger in response, and we will fight to the end. We have heroes like this, right? We see that, and then we see Jesus entering the garden and weeping before God. If there's another way, can there be another way? The danger is this. Jesus is not distressed about his upcoming death. He's not distressed about the nails that will pierce his hands. He's not distressed about the cat of nine tails that will rip the the flesh from the bone. He's not distressed about the thorn of crowns that will be placed on his head. It is not the physical sufferings that has Christ so distressed, so overwhelmed that he's pleading before God, if there's another way, Lord, with you all things are possible. But is there any way that this cup can pass for me? And that is exactly where I want us to feel the weight that is bearing down on his soul, that's causing him such sorrow, such distress. He knew he was going to die. It is not the physical pain. He voluntarily set his eyes towards Jerusalem, knowing that he was going to die. It was not the physical death, however horrific it is to be crucified. It was in the words that we hear Jesus pray, Lord, can you remove this cup from me? What is this cup that set before Jesus, that caused him such sorrow, such distress that he wept before God? Ezekiel chapter 23 says this, Thus says the Lord God, you shall drink the cup that is deep and large, a cup of horror and desolation. You shall drink it and drain it out and gnaw its shards and tear your breast, for I have spoken, declares the Lord. This cup which Jesus is referring to is God's justice against man's rebellion. This is his perfect and loving wrath against evil, against sin, against rebellion. It is the punishment that our sins deserve that now set before Jesus. In Isaiah 51, 22, it says, Thus says the Lord, the Lord, your God, who pleads the cause of his people, behold, 
I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath, and you shall drink it no more. Jesus, the eternally existent Son of God, has only known perfect fellowship with the Father. Whenever He prayed, when we see Jesus going away in, in solitude and silence and praying, He only saw loving acceptance of the Heavenly Father turned toward Him. He has only known perfect harmony in that until this moment. Until in the Garden of Gethsemane, He got a glimpse of what was to come. The cup of God's wrath, of separation that stood before Him, that He would drink in full for the sin and rebellion of every person. And it caused him, just the mere thought of it, caused him to stagger. And so he weeps and he prays. Tim Keller writes this, pastor and author. He says, Jesus began to experience the spiritual, cosmic, infinite disintegration that would happen when he became separated from his Father on the cross. And Jesus began to experience merely a foretaste of that. And he staggered. This is the reality that we are getting the first glimpse of, of what Jesus did for us on the cross. This is why so often when we're taking communion, I, I say that God took the cup of wrath so that we can drink in full the cup of mercy. These things that I say, this is the imagery I'm, I'm drawing from. That if you remember last week, throughout the Passover meal, coming to the cup of redemption, when Jesus took the cup and he gives thanks in that moment, and he says, this is my blood, the blood of a new covenant, which is poured out for many. It is a cup of redemption. It is a cup of mercy that he offers to his disciples, and he can do that because in just a few moments, as he weeps in the Garden of Gethsemane, he knows that what stands before him is the cup of God's wrath. The fullness, he drinks it in full so that we can receive mercy. This is what weighed on his heart. This is why 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, for our sake, think of it in this way, for your sake, for your sake, God made Jesus to be sin. He knew no sin. He was perfect. He did not deserve to drink the cup of wrath that we should have drank for ourselves. But God made Jesus to be your sin so that in Him, in Jesus, by faith, we might become the righteousness of God. That when we trust and place our faith and trust in Jesus, we are saying He drank the cup of God's wrath so I can drink the cup of mercy. Praise God. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the burden he carried in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the disciples fled. I've thought a lot about these words this week that Jesus gave to the disciples to watch and pray.
Watch and pray. He says it in in verse 32, to watch and pray. In verse 38, again, when he comes back out, to watch and pray so that they may not enter into temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. That our spiritual desires and our physical follow-through are different. We fail. And it caused me to ask this question, because to be honest, I feel like I've misunderstood this passage for years. What did Jesus want them to see that they were to watch for? And what were they supposed to be praying for that he commands them to pray for? See, the way that I always understood this is, I always thought about this as he told them to watch because he was burdened. And he was asking the disciples to pray for him in the midst of his burden. And they failed to pray for Jesus while he was going through a difficulty. I don't think that's what's happening here. That's how I always thought about it. That's always how I assumed what it meant. But when we look at what the text is saying, I think there's a much, much deeper reality. What were the disciples supposed to see? When he's like, watch. They were supposed to see Jesus in his moment of distress. I believe they were supposed to see his example and how he responded. And we see exactly what he did. It's laid out there for us clearly. In his distress, he went to Jesus and went to God the Father. And he said, I know in you all things are possible. That in the distress, he went to God the Father. He laid out his plea. If this this cup can be taken from me, Lord, if there's another way, But, ultimately, it was surrender. But Lord, not what I want. Not what I will. What you will. And then seeing Jesus walk in faithfulness to that. Here's the part I think I misunderstood. What were they supposed to pray for? See, I assume that they were supposed to be praying for Jesus because when I'm just thinking watch and pray. But later he says pray. And he came out and he found them sleeping. Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. See, the reality is the disciples themselves, if they were able to see, would know that they were about to endure a similar pressing. They were going to feel the pressure as Jesus is arrested. They were going to feel the weight of, don't you follow Jesus, not me, nuh-uh, of the denial that's to come. And, and they thought themselves strong. They thought themselves, I got it under control, Jesus. We're not going to leave you. We got this. We got this. And Jesus is like, watch. Watch how I deal with distress. See how I pray and pray for yourself. I believe the temptation because he says, lest you fall into temptation, they should have been praying the same thing for their own heart, but they were too busy sleeping and assuming that they had everything under control in their own strength. And they failed to see that their own hearts were weak. They failed to see the, own, the, the pressing that was about to come upon them in this, that their intentions were good. 
but they were all about to fail. I think the invitation to watch and to pray is to realize that we're not as strong as we think we are. And so it's an invitation to go together to God as our provider. To acknowledge and to reconcile in our own hearts that we fail and we stumble, but God, you are the one who is faithful. It's to ask him and say, Lord, there's this this situation, this circumstance before me, this valley that I feel like I'm about to enter, and if there's any way, can you remove this from my path? But so often, God does not remove the valley from our path. But we hear His words, I am with you. And though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, don't fear. For the Lord your God is with you and He wants to be your strength as you you go through the valley. And then we find ourselves in surrender. So Lord, not my will, not my strength, but yours. It's an invitation to not assume our strength and our faithfulness. It's an invitation to surrender, to watch and pray. Here's the thing that I find completely staggering. When we line up the four there's four gospel accounts matthew mark luke and john and when we look at mark in combination with the other gospels and specifically john we see that while the disciples are asleep assuming their strength before jesus gets up that third time to say that the betrayer is at hand jesus prays for them and not only does he pray for the disciples then, the way that the passage is written, he prays for those who believe in Jesus today. Today. Think about this for just a moment. Let it settle on you, in your heart that if you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus, in the moment of his deepest distress, as the weighted burden fell on his heart of the separation that he would endure as he drank the cup of God's wrath for your sin. He prayed for you. The one who was asleep. The one who would fail. The one who would run away. He prayed for the disciples. And so in closing this morning, for the closing prayer, I want to read Jesus' prayer that he prayed for you in that moment. Let's pray. This is Jesus' prayer that night as he lifted his eyes to heaven. And he said, Father, Father, the hour has come Glorify your son, glorify me, that in me I might glorify you. Since since you've given me authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given to me, Lord. And this, this is eternal life, Lord, that they may know, they may know the only true God and that they may know me 
whom you have sent. Father, I've glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, and now, now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Father, I've, I have manifested your name to the people, the people whom you've gave me out of the world. Yours, they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know, they know that everything, <coughs> everything that you have given me is from you. I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them. And they've come to know in truth that I came from you. They have believed that you sent me. And and I'm praying, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for those who you've given me. For they're yours. All, All mine are yours and yours are mine. And I'm glorified, I'm glorified in them. And I'm no longer in the world. But they are in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them. Keep them in your name, which you've given me. That they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except for Judas, the the son of destruction, that the the Scripture might be fulfilled. But now, now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may be my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they're not of this world, just as I'm not of this world. Lord, I, I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Father, sanctify them. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. You sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake, for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. Lord, I don't, always, I don't only pray for these, but I also pray for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me the glory you have given me, I am giving to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them, you in me, that they may be perfectly, perfectly one, so that the world, so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved me. Lord, even as as you loved me, Father, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world, O righteous Father. 
even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Amen.